1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, the wait is over. The mystery is now solved. For people who have been losing sleep over the course of the last several days, because the iconic brand, IHOP, which you know, everybody said, IHOP, you know, it's International House of Pancakes. Well, last week, they said, we're making a change. IHOP is going to become IHOP. And now, did you see they've announced oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. International House of Pancakes, at least for a while, is becoming IHOP, the International House of Burgers. Bum, bum, bum. Ah, uh, yeah. They're, they're apparently trying to convince America that we're more than just breakfast. So... Come on in for a mushroom and Swiss burger. They're going to be IHOP. Now, it, they, they say, um, I, this is actually, it's a marketing stunt. Oh, I think, absolutely. Right? They say, yes. you know, we're not going to be changing the signage or anything like this. We're just going to try to call attention to, to burgers mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So they got a bunch of free publicity. <laughs> yes, they did. They, they, got, they got free publicity. But, but why you would take, uh, uh, you know, an iconic brand, KFC. Everybody knows it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. And why you would kind of mess around with that never made any sense to me so this is a marketing thing would you go to ihop for burgers i wouldn't think about it that way no even if they call themselves ihop you're, you're still no. no it's it's a pancake place. it's a breakfast, breakfast place right they might have other stuff on the menu but you go for breakfast. they yeah. do breakfast yeah. well do something well and bring it in so anyhow if you were losing sleep over the last few <laughs> days going what what could ihop be what could ihop be no it wasn't the international house of burritos international house of breakfast i thought you know if you were going to make a change at least expanding that but they're going after the burger stuff and i don't know you're going to be competing with five guys and all those other places good luck with that all right we start off today's show like we start off every show three big things got to start off it's monday it is 12:10 Got to give my little PG-13 warning for our lead-off topic. PG-13, so if you're driving in the car with the little pictures with the big ears, um, you know, come, come back to me in about seven minutes or so. But there, our first topic is a little bit of an adult topic, and it, it's just because it's it, it's such a mind-blowing topic to me. So that's our warning. Do, 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 do. Okay. Stormy Daniels in Wisconsin. On Friday and Saturday night. Now, let me just back up on why Stormy Daniels, a.k.a. Stephanie Clifford, is in the news. Because sometimes I think we, we lose sight of what's really going on here. Stormy Daniels is a sex industry worker. She makes movies where she has sex in the movies. It is, I I mean, without being judgmental, it is sort of a glorified form of prostitution. It is not the type of thing that I think many people would aspire to. Gee, oh, what a cute little girl. I hope she grows up to be a sex worker. I mean, it's just not that type of thing. If you feel, you know, and it is interesting in kind of like the context of the Me Too movement where women are victimized. Okay, she, she works in the sex trade. And I would say that about guys too. I don't think you would say, gee, I, I, this is my, this is my son. I hope he goes up, grows up to be a, a worker in the sex industry. She makes pornographic movies. Back in what, 2006 or 2007, there's this golf tournament in what, Florida. And she, together with a number of other pornographic movie actresses, are hired to be essentially eye candy. And they're brought to this this golf course 
where they, they have a number of celebrities and mini celebrities and, you know, other people who are paying to play golf. One of the people there at the time is Donald Trump, real estate developer, um, man about town, and the star, and I say that in quotation marks, of The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. Now, at this time, the, the ratings for those shows were kind of like flagging. So you know, he was one of the celebrities at this golf tournament. To tell you where his star was at the time, he got like third billing behind Ray Romano, for example. You know, I mean, that, 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 that's it. So he, he's one of kind of like the B-list celebrities that's there. She's the porno actress um, who's brought in to kind of be eye candy. Okay, so they end up, if you believe her story, they end up having a one-night stand where neither one of them stands. Her story is he invites her up to his room, one thing leads to another, and they have a uh, an evening of, well, it doesn't sound like it was very passionate, uh, but they have sex, okay? All right, then they go their separate ways. He apparently, if you believe her story, he promises her that he'll get her on The Celebrity Apprentice. Nothing ever comes of that. And, and that that's it. You know, they're... they're they go off their ways. She doesn't say he sexually assaulted me. She says, yeah, this is, you know, and, and my guess is this is not the first one night stand of this nature that either Stormy Daniels or Donald Trump has. Right. So it's just two ships that meet in the night and then move on. All right. As time goes on, Donald Trump gets involved in, in politics and starts talking about himself um, with this dream that he wants to be the, the president. At which point in time, Stormy Daniels, whose porn career and stripping career is kind of flagging a, a bit as she's aging, Stormy Daniels says, wait a second, I can sell my story. Here, here's the deal. I had sex with the man who wants to be the president of the United States. Somebody will pay me for that story. Okay. Plus, this will bring me back into the news. So she starts peddling her story. Ultimately, she cuts a deal where she's paid what 130 grand uh, to sell the rights to her story um, exclusively. And the people that pay her the 130 grand, this is where Trump's lawyer come in. Apparently, they buy the they buy the rights to the story and then kill it. They're, so they're, they're not going to publish it. Now, this doesn't stop her, despite the fact that she sold the rights to the story. She's got $130,000. She decides she's going to tell the story anyway. She's going to, you know, ignore her exclusivity deal. And she goes out and I, I, she's on 60 Minutes. She's telling the story that ever, to everybody who, who wants it. But she sues to get out of this deal that she signed, you know, where she sold her story for $130,000. But, but that's... Okay, that's where we are. You have a stripper slash pornographic actors actress who has a one night stand with a mini celebrity who goes on to get involved in politics, ultimately become the president of the United States. She pays is paid one hundred thirty thousand dollars for the rights to her story, and now she is suing because she wants to be able to I don't know tell her story to other people. Like there isn't anybody that have heard it. That's that is the background of this. Now, I have said this before about Stormy Daniels slash Stephanie Clifford. She is the greatest self-promoter since Barnum and Bailey because she's now figured out a way to revitalize her career. She is now in demand. She's showing out outside of court hearings. She's talking about how somehow she is a victim 
And for the life of me, I don't understand how she is a victim in, in any of this. What she is is somebody who sees an opportunity and is trying to exploit it for publicity. Okay, fine. But victim, give me a break. So she's out at Madison, in Madison on Friday night and in Milwaukee on Saturday night. I have in my hands the story that ran in the Madison papers about her appearances at this Madison strip joint. And I just I want to share a couple of the comments that some people, including some women who showed up, made about her. And then we're going to talk about how we have gone through the looking glass. Stormy Daniels. And the people who saw her in their own words, stick around. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so you have the pornographic film actress who gets paid to have sex on film. She is a stripper. She has this one-night stand with real estate developer, B-list celebrity Donald Trump, who was married at the time. There's nobody covering themselves in glory with this. All right. They, they, they're two ships that pass the night. They go on their ways. He gets involved in politics. She realizes there is money to be made and then tries to sell her story. She does sell her story, gets 130 grand. She's then decided, well, I want more. I want more attention. And so now you have these court cases suing to get out from under the deal, all, all that type of stuff. And it has reinvigorated her career to the point that she shows up at strip clubs and people turn out. All right, that, that's the background of this. So I've got in my hand, I have this story in the Madison paper. Um, She says, it's overwhelming to hear her described as a hero and an inspiration. Here's this. Look what she's doing for women in this country, says 70-year-old such and such, who had never been to a strip club before Daniel's Friday night performance. She's suing our president. What could be stronger than that? Look what she's doing for women in this country. Huh. All right, yeah, this is really something to be proud of. After the show, this lady says she'll remember it for the rest of her life. Uh, a 55-year-old woman from Middleton describes Daniels as a sex-positive, strong woman who's really speaking the truth. Hmm. 30-year-old woman shows up. I want to tell my kids and grandkids I saw Stormy Daniels, who came to the club with members of her feminist book club, If she's the person who brings down the president for $15 a ticket, why, why not? And it goes on and on and on. Um, Just behind the table, this is the table where she's like signing photographs. Just behind the table stands a 38-year-old man from Appleton wearing a shirt that at first glance resembles the old It's Miller Time advertisement. The shirt says It's Mueller Time, referencing the special counsel. I'm doing my patriotic duty tonight, says the man who goes by his first name, Al. He is joined by uh, another guy. I want to come here and see a piece of American history. Hours later, Friday night is turned into Saturday morning. A man seated alongside the stage has just returned from the restroom. His nose started bleeding after a particularly aggressive experience with a dancer's chest. He blames seasonal allergies. And it goes on. (laughs) I I can't make this stuff up. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you, says Stormy Daniels. His patrons tuck handfuls of dollar bills between her breasts. Thank you so very much. And the story goes on and on. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Okay. Feminist role model? Feminist hero? 
414-799-1620. In what alternative reality do, do we live that you, you have a woman who engages in a one-night stand with a guy who goes on to become the president of the United States? You know, it, it's neither one of them covers themselves with glory. She sells her story. She then decides she can sell her story. She wants more money for it. And again, in what I think is, uh, give her credit, she's the greatest, like I say, self-promoter since Barnum and Bailey. You know, she has re- reinvigorated her career. But is this is this a feminist role model? Is this a feminist hero? Or is this just a stripper slash porn star who hooked up with a guy who went on to become the president of the United States and she's figuring out a way to cash in? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Regardless of how you feel about Trump, Stormy Daniels, feminist hero? I mean, somebody, gee, all members of my feminist book club are going to come here and we're going to watch this. I mean, is this really the role model that you want your daughters or your granddaughters to aspire to be? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 127, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I mean, uh, give, give this Stormy Daniels, I mean, give her credit. She she knows how to make a buck, and she's figured out a way to exploit her relationship from 10 years ago with the guy who became the president of the United States in their one-night stand. Now she's making a fortune. Now, okay, and that's fine. All right, I'm a free enterprise guy. But the, these glowing stories, these women that are showing up at the strip clubs go, oh, she's a feminist hero. Give me a break. Let's start with Rich in Greendale. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Rich. Uh, my take on this is if our president had been a Democrat and she was a Republican, they would have been screaming bloody murder uh, that this woman is nothing but trash. Yep. Look what she's doing. She's just trying to make money. And like I agree with you, yeah, making a buck's a good thing. But they they never would land all these great, accolades on oh, oh oh exactly no i mean thanks you know you make a very good point let us say instead of it being donald trump this were i don't a, a liberal icon this were a a ted kennedy or something you know like that you know and, and this was a woman who was saying okay well you know he, he's gone on he's become the president here i'm going to sell my story same exact type of thing you, you're right she she wouldn't be a feminist icon she would be viewed, the left would be saying, oh, this is terrible. This is a woman, look, she can't be trusted. Look at what she's doing. She's saying these various things. But because it's Trump, okay, we're going to venerate her. And again, she's, she's making money. That's okay. This is her chosen profession. It is legal. But, I mean, a feminist icon? Last time I turned around, I, I mean, most of the time you would see the feminists who were arguing this is exploitive. You know, this is, you know, women shouldn't have to make money by selling their bodies and, you know, and and performing on camera and having sex and and taking all their clothes off and working at strip joints. Typically, that's the attitude that you have. You know, the feminist crowd, oh, this is awful. People, how demeaning. They worked as Playboy bunnies or whatever. But because it's somebody who has this story that she wants to sell involving the Republican president of the United States, and Trump doesn't cover himself with glory. Okay, I get all that. I, I understand it. But it is this reaction, oh, my gosh, this is something else. I, I, we're, we're a feminist book club is going to come here. I told people that, you know, we have to go see this. And, you know, give me a break. I mean, the hypocrisy of this is, you know, stunning. All right, here's some of our texts. No, um, she is not a role model by any means, and neither is the guy 
that slept with the porn star stripper and then, you know, paid her off to try to keep her mouth shut. I get it. I know. No problem. I understand. Nobody covers themselves with glory in this thing. Completely and totally clear. But for goodness sakes, I mean, this hatred of President Trump makes you now say that, okay, this this is somebody that we want to run out and, and see and we want to like view as a part of Americana. Now, if you want to view it as a curiosity, okay, maybe. I, I get it. But really, she's going to be a feminist hero? Well, if this is what it takes to be a feminist hero, I, I think feminists need to really rethink what they're going to, uh, what their goals are and who their heroes are going to be. It's 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Big story number two. The uh, president left the G7 meetings early to travel to Singapore for this meeting with North Korea that everybody's talking about. But I think it would be fair to say the G7 meeting was sort of, well, a disaster. Uh, the, the G7 is the group of leaders of essentially Western democracies, and the, the subject was, was trade talks. President Trump, uh, well, I think it would be fair to say that he was not necessarily receptive to, he wasn't on the same page with the rest of the European leaders. He started off by saying that he thought Russia should be invited back into the group. It used to be the G8, and Russia was tossed out after it moved in and took over uh, the Crimean. And so after that, Russia was tossed out as part of this like international condemnation. President Trump goes off script and says, hey, I, I, I think Russia should be back here, which I think surprised a number of the other allies. And with the exception of Italy, nobody else thinks that that is, is a good idea. The other leaders of the, you know, particularly the European uh, democracies, viewing Russia as a pretty major threat, decided, no, we don't think that that's a good idea. And then you had President Trump essentially going out of his way to pick fights, particularly with Canada. Um, he, he's had sort of this off and on relationship with with Canada, but um, he essentially said, "Look, we we have to renegotiate our deals. We're like a piggy bank that everybody's robbing, and that ends." He said that he's actually willing to completely end trade with other nations under the current system, saying it would be a very profitable answer if I have to do it. And he indicated that he really had no intention, at least at this point in time, of backing down on the various tariffs that he leveled, 25% tariff on imported steel, 10% uh, tariff on, on aluminum, to which countries like Mexico and Canada have responded by saying, okay, you know, if you're going to put tariffs on the goods that we're importing, we are going to put tariffs on what you export, and we're going to make it essentially unprofitable for um, agricultural products. And that really hits Wisconsin because we, you know, our number one dairy exporter in Wisconsin, we export number one to Mexico, number three to Canada. And so if you start putting additional costs onto what it takes for, you know, the cost of our goods, it becomes less attractive to buy American goods. So a number of people believe this is counterproductive, but President Trump appears to have dug in his heels and saying this is the way we're going to do it, and he's blaming Canada, and he's blaming some of our other allies. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I say with almost every one of these topics, I, I understand that President Trump is controversial. I understand that he has a style that is off-putting, 
and that is in many respects kind of like a bull in a china shop. Sometimes that style works. I don't think you would be having meetings with North Korea were it not for, again, that saber-rattling style. That being said, there is a time that you want to be a hammer, and then there's a time that you want to kind of take a lower profile to get stuff done. I think the appearance that the president had at this G7 meeting over the last few days was nothing short of disastrous. Declaring economic war with our major trade partners, I think, is silly in the extreme and has severe long-term risks. The risks being that you, you know, marginalize the United States. If we are concerned about China and China dumping cheap products onto the world market, all right, fine. Then you target things at China. But to go after some of our principal trade partners, for example, like Canada or Mexico, to me makes absolutely no sense. And I think the president is wrong. And I think it's going to hurt Wisconsin in particular. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the president deserves a lot of credit for when he gets it right on policy matters. And sometimes I don't think he gets enough credit. But at the same time, when he's wrong, he needs to be called out. And I think he's dead wrong. Is it in Wisconsin's benefit to get into a trade war with friendly nations and to get into a peeing match with the Prime Minister of Canada? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you work... Um, in the dairy industry, for example, in Wisconsin, or uh, the cranberry industry, or you want to see Harley-Davidson do well, these are all the types of decisions that hurt us here in Wisconsin. 414-799-1620, I think the president needs to back off, and I'm disappointed that he didn't figure out a way to do that when he was at this G7 meeting, instead, he decides to go the other way. He decides to double down. He decides to throw gasoline on the fire, and I, I think we run the risk of being marginalized. Do we need to take a step back? Do we really want to have a trade war? 414-799-1620. My answer is no. We discuss next. It's 1241. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, this G7 conference that just ended over the weekend was an unmitigated disaster from the perspective of the United States. Um, President Trump believes that the United States has been getting the raw end of the deal, the short end of the stick, to use the cliche, when it comes to trade over the years. And he's trying to undo that. He's saying that maybe what we should do is have complete free trade, no tariffs on anything, anywhere, well, it's an interesting concept. I don't think it's going to happen in in reality, and I'm not even sure that that's the best because you do want to control your markets to some place. But the big problem when it comes to free trade has been China, and I get it. China has been dumping, as they've become more and more industrialized, they've been dumping um, cheaper products on the market. They've been flooding the market with cheaper type of products, and they've been running up, you know, trade imbalances. Okay, so fine. If you want to figure out how you're going to deal with China, it seems to me the way you go about it is by, uh, again, trying to work with your trade partners, in this case, the other leaders of the G7. And what you try to do is you develop, I don't know, maybe a consistent approach to this. 
let's figure out how we're going to handle the problem of China dumping products onto the markets. That's what you do. But instead, the president has decided to pick a fight with a number of, you know, the historically the United States' top allies. Now, I, admittedly, you know, some of those allies stand to lose a lot in a trade war as well. He is threatening to put huge tariffs on um, high-end German automobiles that are imported into this country, you know, the BMWs, the Mercedes, and things like that. And, and that's, that's something that the United States could do that would, in fact, hurt Germany. The question becomes, why do we really want to hurt Germany, though? I mean, because these other companies, countries retaliating as they are, they're having the effect of hurting the United States in general and Wisconsin in particular. And as somebody who cares first and foremost about Wisconsin and the dairy farmers and the people that are growing cranberries and the folks that are making Harley-Davidson motorcycles, they end up, there's no phrase that says, you know, when, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Well, okay, the Wisconsin dairy industry and the Wisconsin cranberry growers and the Harley-Davidson people and you know, the list goes on and on, they're the grass that gets trampled in this sort of battle. And I don't think that that is good for anybody to see that end up happening. And yet that is precisely where we are at this point in time. And then for the president to say, oh, by the way, let's bring Russia back into this. It's got to be just mind-blowing. It's it's completely off script. Uh, at this point in time, from the perspective of the president, given all that's going on with Russia and Russia's efforts to try to, um, again, put let's put aside collusion, but Russia's efforts to try to influence this election, the American election, why you would want Russia with all its aggression. Russia, who was tossed out of the then G8, now G7, because it, it annexed Crimea. And the Crimean, and you had all this military involvement, why you would want to gratuitously bring them back into the fold without requiring them to, I don't know, make commitments to stop their world aggression is absolutely mind-boggling. And yet that's what the president did about this. Some people say maybe he did it in advance of the North Korea summit to try to get people, I don't know, paying attention to show that he was tough and that he could be tough with the North Korean dictator. Well, all right, there's tough and then there's dumb, and at least in my opinion, picking a trade war with our allies who really aren't responsible for trade imbalances that we run, to me, that's just absolutely silly. It is counterproductive, and it's bad for Wisconsin. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, Milwaukee continues to mourn the loss of a police officer who died in the line of duty for the first time in 22 years. John and Melissa have the latest beginning at 3 o'clock on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Be sure to check that out. Yeah, we're going to be talking about, uh, again, some of the aftermath of that in the 1 o'clock hour as well. Um, plus, plus, we will talk about what happened at the Tony Awards last night. I'm not sure anybody cares about the Tony Awards in particular, but there, there is an interesting development. That's all coming up in the next hour of the program. All right. Friday, last Friday. Now, I went to an eighth grade graduation. I'm willing to bet that none of the parents there at that eighth grade graduation hoped that either their children, any of their children, male or female, grew up to be the equivalent of, gee, what Stormy Daniels does. But apparently, you know, Stormy Daniels is a, uh, I guess, this great role model, a feminist icon. Give me a break on that. But um, because I was at this eighth grade graduation, I didn't get a chance to go downtown and check out 
the new streetcars, um, the flop, I mean the hop, had an open house and people could go down and they could look at one of the streetcars that's ultimately going to be on the streets of Milwaukee. They could also see a second one that was kind of elevated. Actually, the Journal Sentinel did a pretty fair story, I think, about it. They said they had people ranging from one guy who says, well, the only reason I'm still in Milwaukee is because of the streetcar. This is going to really turn stuff around. And other people saying, well, we're kind of skeptical, but we're kind of hoping for the best. And the Journal Sentinel story pointed out that streetcars have had varying degrees of success. Big success in Portland, Oregon. Um, not as much so in many other places. A complete and total disaster in Atlanta. A disaster in Washington, D.C. Lots of other problems in lots of other cities. But again, if you look at Portland, you know, it turns out to work in Portland. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Given all the very real problems that the city of Milwaukee has, it continues to absolutely, completely, 100% baffle me that Tom Barrett has decided to tie his legacy in with the trolleys. But that's exactly what he's done. He's the guy that railroaded this, no pun intended, through. He's the guy that says this is going to be the ultimate vision, which is ultimately a 2.1-mile streetcar line that will connect the bus station to the Lower East Side and then a fixed rail track that will run down to the lakefront, which will undoubtedly get a lot of use during the 11 days of Summerfest, less use during the ethnic festivals, and then for the vast majority of the year, little or no use. But we're going to have this fixed rail system. I admit I have been a skeptic. I think this is a giant, expensive white elephant. I think this is going to turn out to be like D.C. and Atlanta. And I think the next mayor and the next members of the Common Council are probably going to end up writing this off as a huge mistake. But maybe I'm wrong. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. The streets of Milwaukee have been torn up for, it seems like, forever now, putting in the the trolley lines. Is this going to be a game changer for the city? Is this going to be the thing that causes young urban professionals to want to live in Milwaukee? Is this going to go a long way towards solving the very, very real economic problems we have? Or is this just going to be a complete and total, total dud? 414-799-1620. And I will tell you, for the life of me, I do not understand how members of the Common Council who represent some of the more economically challenged areas of the city, I have no idea how they thought it was in the interest of their constituents to vote for this huge expenditure of money, because this is going to do nothing, absolutely nothing, for at least a good portion of the city. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. The hop is closer to becoming a reality. People got a chance to see the cars. All right. Are we going to be proven wrong, those of us who are naysayers? Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. uh, Hi, Well, my comment is that the street car is going to be a uh, rolling home for the homeless. And uh, uh, aside from that, Tom Barrett's got a Every night, new detail of the car, but nothing else on uh, lead poisoning and uh, crime in the city and everything else. Well, that, you know, that's an interesting point, Mike. When, when, again, when you look at all the problems, you've got 
crime, which is completely and totally out of control in the city of Milwaukee. You've got, you know, people being shot and or killed on a regular basis. You've got the bad guys that run from the cops. You've got this huge scandal involving lead in the water. And the mayor's response is, well, I had no idea it was going to be. I had no idea that there was this problem, kind of like the potted plant thing. I didn't know. People didn't tell me. And yet the big accomplishment you're going to point to is a 2.1-mile streetcar line that's going to cost you $100-plus million. Ah, it's, it is mind-boggling to me where our priorities are. Yeah, he's playing that uh, I don't know card too often. Well, thank, thanks. Well, I mean, it is, but this is going to be, I guess this is potentially a legacy. Now, fair is fair. It, streetcars have been a success in a handful of places. Like I say, Portland is the example that they always use. But you look at a number of other urban areas – and the streetcars have been a colossal, colossal failure. The other thing is, all right, when it comes to mass transit, M- Milwaukee still isn't that hard to get around. Freddie in Milwaukee. Freddie, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, I've lived on East Side all my life. I'm 74 years old. And as they keep building down here, they don't build enough uh, parking for all the cars. Yep. There's no uh, parking changing from side to side because you can't. Now they tore up more streets and put those rails in, and there's no parking on none of those streets where the rails run. So what is the answer to this? I mean, Well, I mean, I think the idea is they want to force you out of your car and, and then say, okay, you're not going to be able to drive because we're going to make it so difficult, so you have to use the streetcar. But that's not how it's going to work. I mean, people aren't going to be forced into that. People are going to run for the hills when it comes to this thing. I mean, I've lived here all my life, and, I mean, there is absolutely – no parking whatsoever. I'm lucky enough to have a two-car garage. I mean, I live on Van Buren Street. Yep. And uh, my wife was in the house for 73 years. Yeah, but but right, exactly. There's no. I mean, thanks to call. There, there's just that one of the things we'd say. Well, this is going to cause people to take, but the streetcar doesn't run anywhere. And unless we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars more, maybe a billion dollars more, to put streetcar lines all around the city, and who's going to do that? Where is that money going to come from? It's going to be a disaster. Here's a text from Dan. The streetcar is a flop. Now I'm going to avoid downtown Milwaukee as much as possible. Yep, you have Tom Barrett to thank or to blame. It's 109. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eric, before you go, what what would you say is the best fast food around? Not necessarily Ooh. your favorite, but I'm, I'm, you know, best as far as quality service just i mean is there is there a brand that kind of sticks out culver's always seems to stick out culver's yeah that's good rule producing the show today you would say you guys would both say culver's i have no b I, I think culver's is probably a cut above um i would say certainly one of the top two or three would be chick-fil-a okay i mean i just i i uh, you just grew you don't you've never had chick-fil-a oh all right well we He's never. My producer has never had Chick Fil A. Pretty good spicy chicken. Pretty huh. good. It, it's darn. Well, I and the reason I say this is because, um, in in the scheme of fast food stuff, I I mean I I, I got no beef with Culver's, but I I, I think Chick Fil A really does stuff right. And there's a couple Chick Fil A's. There's one in Oak Creek. There's one in Capitol Drive. When when uh, in Brookfield, when the first Chick Fil A opened up on Capitol Drive. People were waiting in line 30, 40, 50 minutes to get a, a chicken sandwich. And, I mean, to the point that they had they, – people were um, – again, they had the cops there. They were uh, trying to control traffic. It was backing out on the Capitol Drive. And I will tell you, you go past the Chick-fil-A now. That's the one I happen to go past a lot. I, I'm not saying that it's always like that, but it's always busy. 
they do a really, really good business. And I, I think part of it is because what they do, they do really well. I, I don't think they try to do too much, but I mean, if you know, unsolicited ad, if you're looking for a good chicken sandwich, I, I think it, it's tough to beat Chick-fil-A, whether Eric was talking about the spicy chicken sandwich, I happen to like the regular one, but I think they do a really good job. And by the way, I am not alone in that. Just to give you an idea, the company's sales have exploded. In 2015, they did $6.8 billion in sales. The next year, 2016, they did $8 billion in sales. I mean, that's growth. They grew $1.2 billion in just a year. That marks 49 consecutive years of sales growth. Um, they have 2,100 restaurants across the country. Um, in 2016, that generated $4.4 million in sales per unit last year, more than any other restaurant chain. Let me give you a comparison. Okay, so per per restaurant, they averaged $4.4 million. And that's an average, as some do more than others. Um, by comparison, the average McDonald's, generated $2.5 million in per-unit sales, and the average KFC brought in about $1.1 million per restaurant. And I, I bring this out not to, not to say, oh, do you like it better than KFC or McDonald's, but simply to say that this is a, a growing, very, very successful brand. It is also, in the minds of some, controversial because it, it, it's owned by a, a family. And the current CEO who took this over from his dad, who was the original founder of this, is a religious man. Chick-fil-A's are closed on Sunday. I mean, they, they, Chick-fil-A's are closed on, on Sundays. In addition, um, they have been very, very public. Back in 2012, Dan Cathy, that's the guy's name, he's the CEO, um, he was doing an interview and, and this is before the Supreme Court ruled on the whole question of gay marriage and all. And he, he gave honest answers. He said that he thinks, based on his religious beliefs, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And he's not a supporter of gay marriage. Now, that, that's not saying that they, Chick-fil-A's, discriminate against people. If you're, uh, you know, two guys that are married, it's not like you're not going to be served at them. He doesn't, Chick-fil-A does not refuse to hire, you know, people who are who are gay. No, but the guy said, hey, this is my personal religious belief. I, I believe that marriage is between a male and a female. And, you know, that's the attitude, for example, that up until the end of his administration, for example, that Barack Obama, you know, used to advocate and push for as well. Now, I understand gay marriage is legal, and, that, and that's fine, and there's no evidence that Chick-fil-A discriminates against you know, people, again, who are homosexual, but that's the personal belief of, of the owner. Well, off and on, there have been sort of half, you know, half-butted attempts to boycott Chick-fil-A. Oh, this is terrible. They're bigots and stuff. All because, again, the, the owner said, this is, you know, my religious beliefs teach me that this is what it is. So there have been e efforts to try to boycott them. And in general, they have failed. When New York, when Chick-fil-A opened its first uh, New York City restaurant a couple of years ago, you know, they, they were expecting, like, all these protests. This is the heart of Manhattan. Now they, they had about a dozen people <laughs> that, that came to complain, and they had, you know, hundreds of people who came to try the chicken sandwiches. Now, I bring this up because there's another problem that developed over the weekend. The CEO of Twitter, his name is Jack Dorsey. 
Okay, over the weekend, he apparently went into a Chick-fil-A restaurant in Los Angeles, and he tweeted a screenshot of his purchases. He's sitting there with his soda and his fries and his Chick-fil-A sandwich, and he tweets a picture of this. He also tweets a picture of him using the Chick-fil-A mobile app, and apparently, you know, he saved 10% or something if if you use the mobile app. So this is the head of Twitter who is sending out, here, here I am at Chick-fil-A, I'm eating the Chick-fil-A, and I've used the mobile app, and I've saved 10%. Okay, fine. The response by a certain segment of the Twitterverse is incredibly damning. Oh, my God, I can't believe that you would go to a Chick-fil-A and you have all these hostile texts from the LGBT community saying, don't you realize that this is Gay Pride Month and and don't you realize that the CEO of Chick-fil-A, well, believes based on his religious teachings that marriage is between a man and a woman. I can't believe that you as the progressive, as the progressive CEO of Twitter, would dare even consider eating at a Chick-fil-A, to which his response, after getting, I don't know, beaten up by a certain part of the Twitterverse, Jack Dorsey sends out a tweet saying, you're right, completely forgot about their background. Background, I guess, meaning they employ 41,000 people, many of whom are really, really good workers, they serve great food. They do it quickly. Is that the background that he's whining about? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You want to talk about political correctness run amok. The fact that the CEO of Twitter, number one, felt compelled to defend his decision to go in and eat a Chick-fil-A is, to me, appalling. It shows a lack of character that this guy couldn't stand up to some of the trolls out there that were whining about this. Number two, this obsession with a particular restaurant because, gee, the owner doesn't share our particular view. No evidence that, again, Chick-fil-A discriminates against people who are gay. No evidence that it doesn't serve people who gay people who are married. Just because the owner has a particularly particular religious view, a view that is shared by a good chunk of this country, not that it's not ill. I'm not saying it should be illegal. I understand what the law is, but that doesn't mean that there's not a good chunk of the country whose religious teachings suggest that a marriage is between a man and a woman. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did the CEO of Twitter have anything to apologize for? And if you are somebody that goes into a Chick-fil-A on a regular or even occasional basis, and my guess is there's lots of you out there, all right, should you not do that? Should you feel guilty going in and getting what I think is a really good chicken sandwich with great service? Should you feel guilty about that because of the religious views of the man who owns the company? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I will tell you, I've got dinner plans this evening. But if it weren't for that, I would be inclined, I'd be inclined to travel out to a Chick-fil-A and buy a sandwich as a way of saying, hey, we're going to push back on these trolls who are deciding that they're going to use their particular agenda to try to undermine a very successful 
American business. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 119. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 122, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So the CEO of Twitter goes into a Chick-fil-A the other day, has a sandwich, tweets out a picture of him with the Chick-fil-A stuff, and also tweets out a photo of him using their mobile app where he was able to save 10%, and he is taken to task. This is terrible. How could you do this? Don't you know that the guy that owns Chick-fil-A, it's a family-run business, opposes gay marriage? Oh, this is terrible. And his response is, you're right, completely forgot about their background. Shame on the guy that runs Twitter, and shame on the trolls that are trying to go after this great American business. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Real well, thank you, sir. I, I, honestly, I think it's a theoretical solution looking for a problem. <laughs> yeah. Really, when it gets right down to it. I mean, seriously? I mean, it's, it's like, as you always say, that you're perpetually offended. You're politically correct and the perpetually right. offended, yeah, I mean, right? It's like you wake up every day looking for something to you know, whine and moan about. It's kind of like, I mean, there's greater things to, to, to put well, the energy in. Well, well right. If, if, look, if you felt, if there was evidence that Chick fil A was discriminating against people based on their sexual orientation in hiring or service, okay, that's a different story. But merely because of the man's expressed religious views, his personal religious views, you have these people who decide that, well, you can't be able, you can't even eat in his restaurants. That's the appalling. If you don't like it, don't go. Well, well, exactly, but you're going to criticize other people. No, thanks. That's it. It's this, we're going to criticize other people. Here's Mitch, your text. The owner has religious convictions that influence his opinion on marriage. He doesn't evangelize or preferentially hire. Fair, tolerant, kind, gentle man. His critics, not so much. Renee in Waukesha. Renee, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, I, I agree with what the other gentleman said, that phrase you always say about them being perpetually offended. Politically correct and perpetually offended, yep. Oh, you know, well, maybe us conservatives should start boycotting liberals' restaurants. Well, I, you know, no, I get that, Renee, you thanks for the call. Know, yeah, no, in retaliation, I get it, no, Renee, but that's not the, I see, that's not the way that you respond. The, these sort of display, that's not the, these sort of displays are petulant, they are childish, um, and they, they need to be rejected. And I guess what, what bothers me, why I think this is a story, isn't that you have a, a handful of sniveling activists who are upset, but it's the fact that the Twitter, the CEO of Twitter had so little intestinal courage that in the face of a handful of people complaining about this, he decided, oh, you're right, This I forgot about their background. What background are you talking about? An incredibly successful business that employs 41,000 people across the country, pays good wages, um, it's a good place to work, puts out a good product. That's the background that you're whining about? And again, this, this shows, uh, again, it's... Right. You, you're always going to do stuff that are going to get people whining. I understand that. Believe me, I understand that. But the question is, how is it that people respond to this? And to me, like I say, the most appalling aspect of the story is that the Twitter CEO just caved in. Instead of saying, hey, you know, they got good chicken. I, I like it. It was good service. It was a great sort of thing. It's, oh, I forgot about their background. I'm so sorry. The last thing I want to do is get anybody mad at me if, gee, the, the people that run a particular business might have based on their religious teachings or their opinions, they might differ from the group think that some bullies end up having. And that's exactly what this situation was. The Twitter CEO caving in 
to some of the minority complainers that are out there, that small percentage of people, instead of simply saying, life is tough, get a helmet. If you don't like the fact that I ate it at, at, uh, at uh, Chick-fil-A, you need to desperately get over yourselves. And maybe the response is, for all the rest of us, if you happen to be in the area, there's one in Oak Creek, there's one on Capitol Drive. I'm not sure if there's others in the area as well. Stop off and have a chicken sandwich. You won't be sorry. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, Robert De Niro, I think, is one of the greatest living American actors. His career, you can really divide it into sort of two two categories. I would say pre-Rocky and Bullwinkle and post-Rocky and Bullwinkle. Did you, Gru, did you see Rocky and Bullwinkle, the movie? It, you said no. You did not. It, it might be. It might be the worst movie ever made. Howard the Duck is better than Rock, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, which starred um, Robert De Niro. But uh, let, let's look at some of the movies he made in the 60s and 70s. Um, 19, well, let's see, 1973, Mean Streets, great movie. 74, Godfather Part Two. 76, Taxi Driver. I mean, th- those are three incredible movies in a three-year period. The Deer Hunter in 1978. 1980, Raging Bull. I mean, you look at, at that seven-year period of 73 to 80. Think of those movies, Raging Bull, Deer Hunter, um, Taxi Driver, Godfather 2, Mean Streets. I'm not sure there's any actor that star, and he did some other movies as well. But, I mean, you want to talk about some great movies. Um, and the 80s, eh, kind of downhill, not as many good things. Um, but Goodfellows in 1990. Um Cape Fear, the remake in 1991, uh, A Bronx Tale, which I happen to like, some people don't, 1993, Casino in 95, you know, there's still, you know, great movies, and then uh, then you have the uh, 2000, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, Meet the Parents, and then it starts to kind of go downhill from there, Meet the Fockers, The Good Shepherd, an awful movie, just Machete, <laughs> Little Fockers. Um, uh, oh, 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 there's a couple decent ones, but in general, like lots of like bad stuff that, that are in their dirty grandpa, you know? So anyways, it, but it's still, it, he's been in a ton of different movies, some really great ones, but in the last 15 or 20 years kind of been challenging. I mean, there, but there's not as many roles like taxi driver and main streets that come around. I get it. Um, De Niro has grown into an angry old man and but yet, he, he, again, as I said, give him credit where he's credit due, one of the greatest, I, I think, living American actors. So if you haven't seen this, last night he is invited to be a presenter at the Tony Awards. The Tony Awards are where the Broadway elite get together and, you know, they celebrate the plays and the musicals and things like that. He's not winning an award, but he's invited to introduce Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen's been doing this residency on Broadway where it's sort of like a, a one-person show where he comes out and tells stories about his life and plays songs and all. Incredibly, very, very successful. I think probably the hardest ticket to get on Broadway right now is still the Springsteen thing, maybe even harder than Hamilton. So anyhow, it's live TV. It's on CBS. So Robert De Niro comes out to introduce um, Bruce Springsteen. So he gets this big round of applause because he's Robert De Niro. He stands up and he says, essentially, I've only one thing to say, blank Trump, and he uses the F word. And then there's this uproarious applause that leads to a standing ovation. 
Now, CBS, because there's a 10-second delay, was able to you know beep it out. But it went out live overseas, like if you're watching it in Australia, you saw it. And, of course, on the Internet feeds, it, it's, it's there. It's not bleeped out. It just comes out, and out of the clear blue, I've got one thing to say, blank Trump. And then he gets the standing ovation from the people in the theater, and then he says, not down with Trump, blank Trump, except he doesn't say blank again. And then after this uproarious applause, then he goes and he introduces Bruce Springsteen. It's completely and totally, there's no context for it. It's just this angry old guy who comes out and just decides that he's going to use this opportunity he has to be on live television together with his celebrity to <clears throat> use a word that I think most of us would agree that, you know, you don't use in polite society. But he gets a standing ovation because this is, you know, this is how he, he feels. Now, earlier on this weekend, uh, before the Tony Awards, on, on Friday night, Bill Maher, Bill Maher is the, the kind of nasty lefty comedi- comedian who's on HBO. Uh, on his show, he comes out and he says that he hopes the country goes into a recession. He wants the economy to crash so that we can get rid of President Donald Trump, recognizing that lots of Americans vote with their pocketbooks, and if people are employed and the economy is doing well and you've got jobs and things are all going good, that the chances are that, you know, maybe maybe even Donald Trump could get reelected. So Bill Maher comes out and says, I, I want to I, I just I, I hope the economy crashes, which is essentially saying, I hope you lose your job. I hope, you know, gas prices go through the roof. I hope you get foreclosed on. I want there to see be a recession because I, I want to see the people rise up and get rid of Trump. And they might not otherwise do that if, you know, there, there's not an economic calamity. And then, of course, the weekend is bookended on Sunday night by Robert De Niro coming out and saying what he said on live TV and getting a standing ovation. Now, where do we go with this? I believe that at some point in time, you reach a tipping point. I think in Wisconsin, and and that's, again, my frame of reference, you saw this after Governor Walker was first elected. You roll out Act 10, and I think there were some people who might not have thought, might have thought Act 10 went too far. But then when they saw the response, the incredible over-the-top response by some public sector employees, the fact that you had union workers from all over the country being bussed in, the fact that you had college kids who were storming the Capitol and occupying the state Capitol, and the chants and the yelling and the death threats. I think a lot of people, and maybe you know we, we don't use the term silent majority anymore because it's got Nixonian overtones, but I think a lot of people in Wisconsin looked at that and said, I just don't want to be a part of this club. I'm not sure if Walker's doing the right thing. I'm not sure if Act 10 is right, but I don't want to be associated with these people who are occupying the Capitol and are making the death threats and are screaming. That's just not what I want to be a part of. And I think you saw a lot of that in the recall election where Walker ends up winning by a larger margin than he won two years earlier. I think we are reaching that point in this country when it comes to President Trump. I get the fact that you have people who are just livid with the president. I understand all that. I understand that there's people who hate him. 
people like Bill Maher who apparently hate him to the point that they hope that the economy tanks, that people lose their jobs because they think that might then be a motivation to get him out. But I think things like saying that or Robert De Niro coming out on live television and, you know, blank Trump, not down with Trump, but blank Trump. I think that that's the type of over the over the top insane overreaction that has the effect of really turning people off. I think a lot of people look at this and say, you know, I don't want to be part of this club. And I think the more unhinged the anti-Trump people get, the more likely it is that President Trump is going to succeed. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think there is a tipping point where you cross the line from protest into this abject hatred. And my guess is a lot of people who saw that last night just go, this is not the time, this is not the place, it is not appropriate. What De Niro did was not appropriate. And then the standing ovation he gets from the glittering New York elite, well, do you really want to be part of that club? 414-799-1620, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 144. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Sue in Milwaukee. Sue, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Sue. Yes, I happen to really agree with your opinion. I did not vote for President Trump. However, I was listening this morning, too, and I understand that the polls are showing a 5% increase, and I must yep. say I would be among that 5% increase. Mm-hmm. Why? Why, why, are, why are you coming around? Because I think that he's doing a decent job. He is doing everything that he said he was going to do. And I think it's disrespectful the way people are talking about it and, frankly, behaving about it. It's like it's insanely ridiculous. Well, you know, I mean, I always always try to switch stuff around. If if, And look, and I understand, for example, that, that President Obama had a lot of detractors. But if somebody had gone out on a similar award show and said, I have only one thing to say, blank Obama. Not just down with Obama, but blank Obama. There wouldn't have been a standing ovation. There would have been screams of racism. The person that did that would probably never be allowed, you know, on television again. But because it, because it's Donald Trump and because it's the left, that's okay. At least it's okay in some people's minds. And I just think there's a lot of fair-minded people who just say, this is over the top. I, I don't want to be part of this group. That I don't want to be associated with people who do this. I don't either, and that's exactly why I think that if you just open your eyes and your ears and pay attention, you'll realize that good things are happening. And did good things happen with President Obama? Yes. Did good things happen with President Bush? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like good things happen when you allow people to do their job. Um. Not being disrespectful. Well, right. Well, th- and, and again, you, you can, I mean, look, and, and, and I understand that there's a lot of stuff about President Trump, which is off-putting and character issues. And I, I, I understand all that type of stuff. But it's sort of like, all right, now it's completely different. And the left has become unhinged. And, and this is part of my cautionary tale. If, I, I mean, I remember you had Bush derangement syndrome back in 2004. You know, in that 2004 election, there were large contingents of the left 
who could not believe that George Bush would be reelected president. And they said the worst things about him, and they were just confident. And, and I think one of the things that got President Bush reelected was the fact that there was a backlash where you had a lot of people in mainstream America who looked at this and just said, this is over the top. I, I don't want to be part of this, this group. And my guess is that there's a lot of people who probably weren't watching the Tonys. It's not like the Oscars. I mean, it, it doesn't get that sort of attention, but are certainly seeing these clips the next day and going, huh. And he said this out of the clear blue and everybody gave him a standing ovation. And for every person that's raising that clenched fist and going right on, you really told him off there, Bobby De Niro. I think there's a lot of people, there's probably five mainstream America going, that was kind of a classless thing to do. And I'm not sure I want to be part of that group. Let's talk to Tony on the Northwest Side. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you. What do you think? Well, Jeff, I got sort of suckered into watching the whole thing because I was waiting for Bruce, and I kept pushing it back. And then <laughs> right. I see, and then I see De Niro come out, and I'm like, all right, De Niro, but when they bleeped him out, I figured it was Trump. But right. It made him look like a fool. So that- looked, he looked like a, a, a serious fool doing this. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Well, I, again, it's it's just this this kind of thing that like anything goes, and and it's not even it's it's not even context. It's not even like like De Niro is speaking at the Democratic convention and he's trying to you know fire up the crowd. I think you would argue even at that it would be inappropriate. But right. it, but but and this you is know it's I a Tony word. It. It's a time and place for things. This was just a wrong wrong. You know, it was a right. decent show. It was a real nice show. Now Bruce is coming on. And here comes this fool with his Trump thing, and it was. Right. I looked online and watched it, and I was like, "Oh, yo, yo, yeah, no, thanks." I mean, that, that's precisely, you know, that's precisely what the reaction is. And there, there's a time and a place for everything. Now, I, I, I understand because you have a certain segment of our country that is completely unhinged to the point that, again, you got Bill Maher hoping that you lose your job. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. I I want this country to face an economic crisis because I'm afraid that's the only way we can get rid of President Trump. So he's hoping you lose your job, that you know people get foreclosed on. He's hoping the economy goes to you know where. Now is is that? Do you really want to be part of that club? Seriously, and that's where I think that sound that you hear, and you're starting to see it in the polls. And who knows what's going to happen in November? I mean, in, in, we just you don't know. But I think that there's a lot of people out there who are sort of politically neutral, they're put off by some of the Trump stuff Trump does and says, believe me, I, I get that, but th- this idea of, you know, these highly paid actors standing up and saying, you know, blank, you know, blank Trump, th- that's, I think most people agree that's not part of the reaction. And I do stand by what I said. You know, if somebody had tried to do that the other way around when President Obama was president, number one, it wouldn't have gotten a standing ovation. Number two, that person would have condemned, been condemned as being a racist and a hater and never appeared on TV again. Sarah in Milwaukee. Sarah, you're on WTMJ. Sarah? Oh, hi. Hi, Sarah. Um, I think Donald Trump started it with the racist things that came out of his mouth with all the idiotic insults and hate and... He's getting back what he's given out. 
do you, well, I, I don't know if you can say he started it because, I mean, I, oh, I remember, oh, well, no, I, I remember the Bush years. There was a lot of hate from the left directed at President Bush. I mean, a lot of hate. So, I mean, I think there's been a lot of hate that's been there for a Well, you had a lot of, you had a lot of hatred that was out there, but you think because Trump and is Trump. Did this stuff Donald Trump is doing. You, um, the the hatred mean? that comes out of that man's mouth is unbelievable. So you think anything goes? I think that when we went higher, it didn't do any good. And I think. So anything goes. Uh, Almost you anything know, goes. I wish, I, I wish I could say that wasn't true, but he asked for it and he's getting it. Well, do you think do you think that's going to work? I mean, do you think that, do you think that, all right, so, so Bob. I'm not thinking of it as a game plan. I'm just thinking he brought this on himself and he's getting it back. Okay, well, thanks for going. And here, here would be, again, here would be my, my comment on that. And, and I understand that maybe it makes Robert De Niro feel really good. And maybe it makes those, you know, the 500 people who are ever are in that theater on, on last night in New York City, feel good, and maybe it makes some of the people you know in Hollywood feel good, and maybe it makes those people you know some of the people who are the avid Trump haters feel really good. Okay, I, I got it, but it's sort of like saying the kid who throws the, the temper tantrum screams and yells and throws himself on the floor, you know, pounding his you know fists. Because mom didn't buy him the you know the the candy the the candy bar at the grocery store, maybe maybe that tantrum makes that kid feel good, but doesn't necessarily make anybody else who's watching the kid throw the tantrum feel good. And and I do I you know we'll know sooner or later. But I go back to my basic premise and I stand by it. I think the more unhinged the reaction to Trump is, I, I think the more likely it is that he is going to succeed with the voters. And you are starting to see that, you know, with the poll numbers that are ticking up to the point that, believe it or not, his poll numbers are at the same places that Obama's poll numbers were and that President Bush's poll numbers were. So President Bush and President Obama in the same kind of position. And I think part of it is that, again, people are just responding. I think there's a lot of people for every person that feels good. You really told it like it is. There's a bunch of other people that are out there going, man, this is childish. It's over the top. And again, I point to I point to what happened with Act 10 as Exhibit A. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Rounds June 15th through the 17th, featuring Polish bands, a nonstop polka stage, traditional folk dancing, cultural village, and marketplace. The Big Boom Ski Fireworks display will happen on Saturday night, sponsored by Planners Financial Group. Fulfill your festival appetite with music, fireworks, 30 restaurants, Tischke Beer Gardens, Chopin Vodka Lounge, and more. Visit PolishFest.org for more info. Brought to you by Miller Lite and Tischke, official beers of Polish Fest. For Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's showroom directory, visit PellaWI.com slash radio. Breaking news, weather, traffic, and the home of the Packers, Brewers, and Bucks. We are Wisconsin's radio station. News Radio WTMJ, Milwaukee. 
2 o'clock, it is 60 degrees, mostly cloudy, cool today, and a high 76 from the WTMJ Breaking News Center. I'm Melissa Barclay. In just a few hours' time, President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un will face off in Singapore. It's the first time a sitting U.S. president has sat down with North Korean Columbia County, that type of stuff. And you've been hearing the different ads uh, about her and talking about her being extreme and her tweets. Um, you, you might be wondering what those ads are, are talking about. And credit where credit is due. Dan Bice, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, has an online posting. Um, this is the headline. A Democratic Wisconsin Assembly candidate tried to hide old tweets. Here's why. And he's tracked down. Because apparently what she did is she took all her, she tried to, she's tried to scrub the, these, these tweets. Um, now that she's running for office, because presumably she doesn't want people to see them. Um, well, there's, as Vice writes, there's a good reason for this. Um, she called Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, I can't use this word, um, but it refers to a feminine hygiene product. She called him a blank nozzle. She liked a tweet that called U.S. Senator John McCain a dishonest, bizarrely unhinged little man. She retweeted a quotation that said former Vice President Dick Cheney deserves to be treated as a war criminal. She said that uh, she found Walker to be immoral and reprehensible. And I understand that there's some people out there going, right on, absolutely. But, uh, again, you're talking about sort of this fringe element that she clearly belongs to. Um, Liked numerous tweets critical of President Trump likening his election victory to the rise of Nazi Germany. In other words, the, the bats are flying around the belfry pretty pretty quickly there. Um, let's see. Tweets not, this is again Bice's column, tweets not limited to personal attacks on Republicans. Um, she responded favorably to an article on the electoral success of the Democratic Socialists of America. Add me to the list of believers, she wrote in November of 2017. Um, she thought uh, raising taxes on the wealthy and hiking the minimum wage an intelligent, thoughtful, and fair way to grow a state's economy. Um, okay. She commented on a tweet in which someone upset over America's bombing campaign in Syria suggested we are becoming terrorists. Um, she wrote, we were once a shining beacon of hope for people around the world. Who have we become? Um, huh. So it, it kind of goes on and on. But you, you get the impression from this that she's a kook. <laughs> just, she's just a flat-out kook. And uh, so if you're wondering, uh, if you're wondering, again, you know, what these ads are about, um, well, she's just, she's a kook. And I guess people in that assembly district will decide whether they want to elect a left, far left wing, you know, just people hating kook or, or not. But if you're wondering what those ads are referring to, Bice has a lengthy piece up on JS Online that I certainly invite you to check out. Okay. That election is tomorrow. Um, some people say, "Oh, this is going to be indicative of whether there's a blue wave or not." I, I, I don't know. It's tough to, it's tough to draw too many conclusions about special elections held in the middle of June and and what they might mean. Um, my guess is that the Republicans hold both of those seats, but again, that's just that's just a guess. I think some of this anti-Trump hysteria is starting to fade away as the economy continues to get pretty to do pretty well. And in addition, I, as I said in the last segment, I think there is a backlash, and I think it's a growing backlash to the over-the-top reaction of the far left, and I think it's pushing a lot of people in the middle away from the left. And every time you have an incident like the Donald, uh, the uh, Robert De Niro one yesterday, I think that pushes more people in the mainstream 
away from the kook fringe because it's just not a club that they want to be associated with. Okay, here's the story I want to talk to you next. There is a, a term that, that some people object to. It's the term anchor babies. In the United States, we are one of a handful of developed countries that have what is called birthright citizenship. What that means is if you are born in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States. It doesn't matter if mom and or dad aren't citizens. If you're born in the United States, you are a citizen. The term anchor babies is is a term that's used to describe um, parents who are in this country illegally. And then the argument is you can't deport their parents because you would separate the families. The kids are citizens, so they're U.S. citizens, so they are then the, the anchor, which should keep the parents in this country because it wouldn't be right, even though mom and dad, mom and or dad are here illegally, it wouldn't be right to send mom or dad back because the kids are citizens. That's where the term comes from. And again, some people are, are bothered by it. I, there's other ways to describe it. But, but my point has always been on that term that you can't have it both ways. If, if you're going to argue, well, you shouldn't use that term because kids can never be anchors, well, then you, you shouldn't use kids as, as being the anchors to keep people here who are in this country illegally. Which brings me to the current high-profile deportation case. Now, this is out of New York. It involves a man named Pablo Villavinciano. He is from Ecuador. And here, here's the uncontroverted facts. He came into this country illegally from Ecuador in 2008. He's now 35, so he was in his you know mid-20s. All right, so he comes in illegally 10 years ago. He has committed no crime since then. He was apprehended, though, and he went through the whole deportation process. And in 2010, eight years ago, an immigration judge ordered him to leave the country. So he was ordered deported in 2010. He didn't leave the country. And since then, he has knowingly been illegally in this country. Instead of leaving when he was ordered to do so, he got married and he started a family in New York. And and New York City is one of these places where it's kind of a semi-sanctuary city. Um, They've got local laws that somewhat shield undocumented immigrants from federal authorities. So came into this country illegally in 2008, ordered deported in 2010, chose not to go, and instead got married and has had two children. He's got two kids, um, ages two and three, I believe. So he's in this country. He knew that he was a fugitive and always at a risk of deportation. But he decided he wasn't going to leave. He got a job delivering pizzas. He works at, worked at a, at a Queens pizzeria in Queens, New York. Okay, delivering pizzas. That was his job. Okay. There's a small army garrison in Brooklyn called Fort Hamilton, which was about an hour from the restaurant. Um, a sergeant at Fort Hamilton would routinely order lots and lots of food from this particular pizza place where the guy worked. Apparently, the sergeant liked the food a lot, so they would order bulk orders. They'd order lots and lots of pizzas or pasta or whatever, and they would have it delivered to the fort. So this man, um, who'd been, again, driving for them, you know, he was making these deliveries. 
Well, he'd been on this trip many times and hadn't had a problem. But what happens is uh, June 1st, so a couple weeks ago, he pulls up at the checkpoint, and there's a different guard that's at the checkpoint. And they, they ask him for his ID. And apparently there's something that doesn't check out with his ID. And they start asking him questions. They ask him for a driver's license. They ask him for a Social Security card. And then they find out that there's an old immigration warrant outstanding against him because he was ordered deported in 2010. He never left. And so there's been an arrest warrant out for him since 2010. Okay? They take him into custody. And now he's on the verge of being deported. Well, the New York governor's gotten involved. The New York mayor's gotten involved. A federal judge has issued a temporary hold on deporting the guy. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The argument is he came into this country. He's got two kids. He's been, you know, working at this job delivering pizzas. He's gotten married. How can you send him back to Ecuador? And I guess my response is he came into this country illegally. He was told to leave the country in 2010. He knowingly and intentionally decided to ignore that order. He's been living as a fugitive for the last eight years. And if people are upset about breaking up this family, what they should be upset about is with him because he's the one that's made all these different choices. Is that this heartless and cruel approach? Or if we let this guy stay, are we simply rewarding people who, number one, come into the country illegally, and number two, you know, when told, given lawful orders, decide that they're not going to comply? 414-799-1620, send him back. And, I mean, I understand some people might think that that sounds heartless, but I'm sorry, send him back. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. It's 219. If you're on the line, please hold on. 222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I have a tweet here. Who benefits from disport, deporting this guy? I mean, seriously, who wins? Well, I mean, the, the rule of law wins. I mean, it, that's like saying, well, all right, you, you just you robbed the 7-Eleven. You violated the law, but you gave the money back. Why should we punish you for robbing the 7-Eleven? You said you're sorry. I mean, there, there, there are consequences of, of coming in, of violating a law, whether it's coming into a country illegally or whether it's robbing a 7-Eleven or, or whatever. There are consequences. Do we simply say the law doesn't matter? And if you come in, and in this case, the man wasn't able to avoid detection, he got caught pretty much right away. He was ordered, sent back. It's not like he says he didn't know. He made a conscious decision that he was going to, for whatever reasons, he was going to ignore the law. He was going to stay here. Well, now they've caught him, and they want to send him back. 414-799-1620. Christina in Hartford. Hi, Christina. Good afternoon. Um, maybe I'm a little jaded because I'm a woman in my 40s and I date, but um, this guy knew exactly what he was doing. He was caught. He was told to go back home. So he turns around, finds himself a girlfriend. I don't know how they got a marriage license because he's not a citizen. Got married had a couple kids so that the rest of the U.S. would feel sorry for him. How can you support a father of two young children? Right, you're going to break up this family, and, and, and actually the his lawyers, that's what they're doing. They, they bring the kids to the hearings. The kids are crying. Where is Daddy? We don't understand. You know, why isn't Daddy coming home? Well, and Daddy... Another thing that upsets me about the whole situation is this gentleman is not even really trying to 
better himself. I don't mean to insult pizza drivers, but if you're going to be a father of two children, I would hope that you would spend some time trying to find gainful employment, which, of course, well, he's not doing. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know how much money he was making stuff, but they, again, these are all, these are all decisions that he made. I mean, again, it's, it, it, it's it's sort of the same thing. I, I will look at other sort of criminal behavior. You you commit you commit a crime and then you run. Should you be held accountable? Then you say, okay, well, eight years later they end up catching you, and now it's don't hold me accountable. I mean, these are the choices that he made, and and yes, it, it's a hardship on the kids. But you know, who do we blame for that? You blame the guy. How, how can you just ignore the laws? Absolutely. And I, I would like to know what other country you can get away with this. And I mean, could I go to Europe and hang out too long? And then when they try to kick me out, just check up with some guy and say, sorry, we have kids now? No, I, I thanks. So. Good good luck with that. I mean, I again, I, I've talked to people who've overstayed visas in places even like Ireland or Italy. And, you know, within a week or two, there's bang. People are knocking on the door and they're saying, hey, you've overstayed your visa. You know, you've got X amount. You got forty-eight hours to get out of the country. In this case, it's not like the man wasn't given full due process. And I guess the question becomes: You know, do we have or should we have control over our, our borders when people come into this country illegally? And if you want to talk about the overall impact of, of immigration, if we want to say, "All right, look, do we need to?" have more people into this country? Do we need to figure out the way to allow more people to come into this country? Okay, I'm, I'm fine with that discussion. But right now, the law says you can't come into this country illegally. In this particular case, the guy came in illegally. He was told to leave. He chose not to. So, you know, what part of enforcing the court order don't we get? Let's talk to Ian in Kenosha. Ian, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Are, is this man being treated unfairly? I think uh, I don't think he's being un- treated unfairly. I think uh, I think he gets what he deserves because you shouldn't uh, treat treat your country uh, the way you should. Like if you're told to leave, you should leave, and you know, and and it's and if you don't have the respect for, for your country, then just then don't come in. You know. Well, thanks. I mean, that's. I mean, you're, again, you're you're just you're just violating the law. Okay, now here's the thanks for calling. In. Here's the flip side of this. Uh, let me see where does this tweet start. Um, that 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 that. Uh, I am okay. I am a business owner, and I am struggling not due to lack of sales, but due to lack of employees. And I am so tired of this anti-immigration attitude. Because like it or not, immigrants are hard workers. They value a day's pay for a day work, and they are trying to make a better life for themselves. They are a hundred times better. This is the texter, not me, than the lazy Americans in my community who refuse to work and think everything is owed them, and all they want is a handout. Um, they are, you know, killing American businesses who are relying on low-skilled labor in service industry jobs. Okay, see, to me, this isn't an anti-immigrant attitude. All right. It is an anti-illegal immigrant attitude, which are two completely and totally different things. If we need more workers because we're pretty much close to full employment, and if this guy who's texting me is right that a lot of American workers don't want to work at certain jobs and they're lazy or whatever, okay, fine. We'll, we'll accept that for the sake of argument. I'm not sure I agree, but we'll accept it for the sake of argument. But then the key is let's figure out all right, how how do we get more people into this country legally? 
It's not anti-immigrant. I don't think anybody here is anti-immigrant. I'm certainly not. But yes, when it comes to illegal immigration, yeah, that's where you draw the line. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The I-94 rivalry begins another chapter as the Cubs come to Milwaukee, trailing the Brewers by just half a game for first place in the NL Central. Hall of Famer Bob Uecker is on the call. Our coverage starts at 635 tonight, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Don't let the Cubs take over Miller Park. So if you don't have anything else on the agenda tonight, I'm sure tickets are still available. Go on out. This is a fun Brewers team to watch, and go on out taking the games and just, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm going tomorrow night, and I'm going to, uh, Wednesday afternoon, and I'm not going on free tickets. This is my my dime. Take the games tomorrow. I bought tickets myself. Reached into the. Sometimes people say, "Ah, it's easy for you to do. You got one of those passes." Well, I have a press pass, but I'm I've got tickets that I actually paid for. So going out, and if you see us out at the stadium, say hi. This is you know there. This is an interesting story that may or may not make a difference in the August primary. Um, there's 10 people who are on the ballot running for the right to challenge Governor Walker. And it's interesting because they've now announced by random draw the the order of people on the ballot. And you might not think that it makes a lot of difference, but the truth is it, it does. It, people who study elections, really, really smart people, there, there's two things that they have. One is called ballot fatigue. And what that means is, as as you go f- and think about your own self, as you go from the top to the bottom of the ballot, typically you vote fewer people vote the further down the ballot you go. So it might be like at the top of the ballot you vote for president, and then you vote for U.S. senator, and then you vote for governor, and then you've got state senator, and then you've got state assembly person. Well, there's a lot. Some people vote for every office. But a lot of people will kind of drop off. You know, you vote for president, you vote for senator, you vote for governor, and then, you know, maybe you vote for Congress. Then you kind of like going down the ballot and, and you end up dropping off. So what they'll see is there's going to be, and this happens almost all the time, in any given precinct, there's going to be more votes for, say, president, if it's a presidential election, than there will be for the school board because people have dropped off. They call it ballot fatigue. You vote less as you go down because I think what ends up happening is, I don't really care about that race or I don't know who these people are. That is a phenomenon. One of the other things that they also find is that placement on the ballot makes a big difference. If your name appears first, um, and voters don't know, there's a race, and they don't know who the candidates are. Your name appears on top, people are more likely to vote for the first name they see than the second name they see. It, it's weird, but, but it's true. So here you have a Democratic primary. So how do you decide to do this? Well, it's not fair to do it alphabetically, because if you agree that, you know, the person who appears first has an advantage over the person that appears 10th, just because your last name starts with an A, you know, should that person always be in that better position? So what they do in Wisconsin is the way that makes sense to me. They, they do it, you know, randomly. You know, they kind of like they draw for name positions. So in the Democratic primary, you've got, you've got 10 people that are running. The order, sort of interesting, this Andy Gronick, who is the crazy Milwaukee businessman, um, he's at the top of the ballot. Um, then you've got Matt Flynn, who's the retired lawyer who's run lost for pretty much everything there is to run for. Then Tony Evers. Then Josh 
paid Kenosha attorney. I don't know who he is. Mike McCabe, who's the like the campaign finance guy, the, the left wing campaign finance guy. Malin Mitchell, the firefighters guy. Kelda Roy's former state representative. Paul Soglin, Kathleen Weinhout, and Dana Walk. So that's the order that they're in. It will be interesting to see when you look at all the votes whether or not how how much of an advantage do you have being at the top of the list as opposed to at the bottom of the list and you know if it's only one percent that could make a huge difference so i don't think there's any question that um the people at the top of the list evers and flynn and gronick i think they they gotta they gotta break you'd rather be at the top than the bottom of the list and i know that sounds silly but the statistics bear that out okay in illinois they are, as a general rule, in most states, not all states, but in most states, to purchase tobacco products, you need to be 18 years old. That's the general. You can vote at the age of 18. The drinking age is 21 in most states because the federal government says states can't get highway money if they don't have an 18-year, if they don't have a 21-year-old drinking age. But cigarettes are treated differently. And so, as a general rule, it is legal to purchase tobacco products at the age of 21, and that's the case in Illinois. Um, there is a bill that is on the way to the governor's desk, which would raise the legal age for purchasing tobacco and nicotine products from 18 to 21 statewide. And this would also include the vape stuff because it would also apply to nicotine products. Um, anti-smoking advocates argue the bill would prevent teens from developing lifelong nicotine habits. The flip side of this argument is, hey, you know, you're 18 years old. I mean, so for, you know, if if you're old enough to, you know, enter the military, you should be old enough to purchase cigarettes if you want them. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, let me kind of explain my position on this. I do not understand in this day and age, why people start smoking. It, it is just beyond me. I, I understand if you've been smoking for 25 or 30 years and you develop this addiction and you've tried to quit a couple times and you can't. I get it. I mean, I, I understand that. Addictions are tough things to battle. So I understand that aspect of it. But one thing that we know for sure is cigarettes aren't good for you. And I'm not lecturing on this, but cigarettes aren't good for you. They are expensive. What do cigarettes cost nowadays? Like eight bucks a pack or something like that. So it, it's stupid money. It's eight bucks a pack. Cigarette smokers are treated as pariahs in our society. You can't sit in bars and smoke anymore. You have to go out and huddle outside the you know ashtrays. You know you're you're not allowed to smoke in a lot of different places. It's expensive and it, it's it's not good for you. I mean you know you. I understand there's people who might call up and say, I've been smoking for 35 or 40 years and it's never hurt me. But but the truth of the matter is, it's not good for you. And you, you just, you cannot argue that. So, I mean, I, again, I understand if somebody's been smoking for years and years and just can't quit, I get that. But why people, when it's always amazing to me when I'm walking into bars or, or restaurants or whatever, and I see particularly young people, um, and particularly females, because so I, I happen to I maybe notice that more. You know, young women in their, I don't know, in their mid to early 20s, sitting around, you know, smoking cigarettes. And I almost want to shake them and say, what's what's up with that? Why, why are you doing this? It's not good for you. You know, it's going to be addictive. Why are you doing this? So I don't get the fact that, that people smoke. 
I, I, I don't think it's good for people. I think the world would be a better place, except for tobacco growers, if people made the decision not to smoke. All right? So that's where I come down on this. But at the same time, it is a legal activity. And I guess if it's a legal activity, I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, at the age of 18, you're an adult. And I, I think you should be able to legally smoke at the age of 18. I think this bill is a bad idea. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the legal age for purchasing tobacco products be raised from 18 to 21? And the argument is, hey, you know, if, if we up the legal smoking age, it will say we'll, we, we might be able to get people to start smoking later in life. Maybe they won't smoke. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. I say you're an adult at the age of 18. I think you should be able to buy cigarettes if you want. And I'm not encouraging you to do that. We discuss next. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Right now, there's five states, um, California, New Jersey, Oregon, Hawaii, and Maine, that say you have to be 21 years old to buy tobacco. There's also a number of localities throughout the country that have individual restrictions. But five states, the smoking, the age to buy tobacco is 21. Illinois is, the governor is deciding whether he's going to sign a bill that would make Illinois the sixth one. I, I'm, I'm a violent non-smoker, and I don't understand why people, particularly young people, make the decision to smart, start smoking. At the same time, you're an adult at the age of 18, and I would not be in favor of raising the age to purchase tobacco. 414-799-1620. Deb in Oak Creek. Deb, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Deb. Um, you just said a statement that had me second-thinking my, yeah. my theory on this. Um, when my dad was in World War II, they always got a ration of beer and cigarettes. My dad didn't drink or smoke, so he sold he sold them at quite a high rate. <laughs> right. He he, he had his own little version of the black market going, huh? Oh, you bet. <laughs> and sent all the money home to my grandparents. Right. They mostly used and saved for him. Um, he never smoked or drank a day in his life. My mom smoked, but not a lot in front of us kids. Um, half of us smoked, half of us didn't. I did. I never smoked a day mm-hmm. in my life. Um, at age 18, yes, you are considered an adult. Um I know a lot of kids were eighteen who shouldn't be adults. Yeah, but, but you can get um, married. You can sign contracts. You can yeah, ent- you can join help. the military. Sure. I I'm a, I'm like you said. You're I can't remember the word you used. Um, a violent a violent non-smoker. Yeah, violent yeah. Non-smoker. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Never smoked. You know, never smoked. My husband and I. As a matter of fact, when I met him, um, a couple hours later, I had flat out said, "Do you smoke?" He goes, "No." Do you? And I went, "No." I turned around and I looked at my friends and I gave them a thumbs up. And said, yeah, that's it. And we did. We got married for 37 years now. But um, no one in his family smoked. We have friends uh, who were chronic smokers. We've kind of moved away from them, one, mm-hmm. because of it. Their two kids actually grew up in a, we did walk into this house and there was a cloud of smoke. Right. And they never stopped smoking in front of their kids. Their kids smoked since probably 16, and the parents never stopped them. Hmm. And their excuse was, well, it's secondhand smoke, we got addicted. Don't know if that's true or not, but now, those two kids have stopped smoking early on because 
as far as I'm concerned, it is a product of, you know, you see, you do. Sure. And uh, if it's okay for the parents, why isn't it okay for us? Mm-hmm. As far as being 18, I was a firm believer for raising it to 21. I still am 99% of it, but if you weigh it against being an adult and going into the service and whatever else, it might be an outlet, but I don't think that's an excuse for it. Okay, well, thank, thanks, and I appreciate the perspective. And it, yeah, it, it, yeah, it can go one way or the other. A lot of people start smoking young. Um, they grow up around it, or, or it can go the other way. I, I know people, including some people close to me, who grew up, not, not me, my parents didn't smoke, but who grew up in households where mom and dad were chain smokers, and they went the other way. They just, they couldn't stand it, and they became, uh, again, the, the incredible non-smokers and the violent non-smokers, and I say that, I don't mean you're going out and you're punching somebody who's smoking a cigarette. I mean, you know, they, oh my gosh, you know, I, I can't believe... Uh, we're in the restaurant, and uh, I don't want to be seated near the non-smoking section. Uh, you know, we have to be far away from that. I, I guess, I, I mean, I'm not an advocate for, for young people smoking. Like I say, I, I don't get it. I mean, you know, I, I mean, eight bucks a pack or whatever it is, maybe less if you buy it in a carton. But, I mean, that's a lot of money to do something that's, you know, going to be bad for you. But, but at the same time, we all make those decisions, and we do stuff that's bad for us. Larry and Slinger. Larry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Larry. First off, I hate smoking. I absolutely hate it. But I'm going to say this. You know, if we trust them to vote, how can we, tr- how can we not trust them then to make the decisions for the rest of their life? Right. If we're going to come along and say, hey, um, we can't trust you to make the right decisions for your 21, why are we allowing to vote then? Right. Or, or, you know, or get so married or sign contracts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I... Go ahead. No, I, no, I mean, that... That, that's it. It seems to me there should be an age of adulthood or, or there shouldn't. And I'll tell you this, Larry, I got a couple texts saying, well, how do you feel about the, you know, 21 year old drinking age? The drinking age was 18 when I turned 18. I would be in favor of lowering the drinking age back to 18. Um, I, I, I think if you're an adult for one thing, you should be an adult for everything. And I, I've always believed if you lower the drinking age back to 18, you'd, you'd, you'd get rid of binge drinking at college house parties and stuff like that. I, I, I think you should go back. I think we should have one size fits all. Eighteen years old, you are an adult. Period. I agree a hundred percent on that. Yeah. If no. we're going to set everything else to twenty-one, then voting has to go up to that too. Right. And, and then service in the military, then also. Right. You can't say that you're an adult on one thing and then say you're not an adult on the other. No, th- thanks for saying. I I agree with you. And, and again, I I appreciate the argument. Smoking is bad for you. That by delaying. By delaying the the age which we can legally purchase tobacco, maybe fewer people will start smoking. I, I I get all that, and I think that's a noble cause. But intellectually, you're either an adult or you aren't an adult. And if we're going to let you make the decision to join the military or get married, well, then I think we should also say, all right, if, if you want to have a cigarette while you're making that decision, you can. Although I would encourage you, don't make that choice. If you just say no and don't start, There's not much chance you're going to get addicted. 253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.